This is Macro Horizons, episode 84, Meet the New Fed, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of August 31st. And as we continue to ponder the longer-term implications of the recent framework shift, we can't help but think, same as the old Fed. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market saw a pretty significant repricing in the wake of the Fed's framework transition. In fact, the sell-off in the 10- and 30-year sector put rates higher than the August refunding week in which we saw another meaningful sell-off. Now, with 10-year yields closer to 80 basis points than to 60, I think it's important context as we consider how the rest of the year will play out. Our baseline assumption coming into this period of the summer is that rates would be contained by the seasonals and the uncertainties associated with the increase in COVID-19 cases and the implications for the employment market. The fact that rates increased as high as they have speaks to the notion that in the absence of those other factors, we might have had a reasonable shot to get above 85 or even to 90 basis points in 10-year space. Nonetheless, we are very concerned with the performance of risk assets in an environment where longer-dated rates continue to drift higher. The implications from a spike in equity volatility to financial conditions could prove very thematic over the coming months, particularly in the run-up to the presidential election. Our take is it's still a bit early to see aggressive positioning around the presidential election, although we'll be the first to acknowledge it's a pretty significant event risk between now and the end of the year, but it is overshadowed by the progression of the pandemic. As we continue to contemplate the U.S. rate space and look overseas to what's going on in Europe, what's going on with the ECB, and even as far as Australia with the Aussie and some of the implications there for not only their short rates equivalent of LIBOR, to see nothing of the QE that we're now seeing in all major markets, we're reminded of the increase of the amount of sovereign debt in the world that is now carrying a negative yield. In that context, the fact that the U.S. is still above zero does bring into question the continued drift lower in the dollar. Now, much has been said about the implications from a weaker dollar, although what strikes us is the potential to be importing inflation at a point when the Fed has made it abundantly clear that they're willing to let inflation run hot for the foreseeable future, and they're also content to let the unemployment rate drift lower than it has in prior cycles. Now, if the U.S. economy can successfully transition from supply-side inflation to true demand-side inflation, presumably driven by higher wages, that will be the point where the Fed 
finally starts to contemplate normalizing rates. That said, we struggled to do that for the last decade, even prior to the pandemic. And given the dislocations associated with the pandemic for the labor market, it's challenging to imagine that the Fed will be anything except for very easy for a very, very long time. So we got the sell-off we were looking for, high 70 basis points and 10-year yields. Where do we go from here? Well, Ben, I would argue we didn't quite get the extent of the backup in rates that we've been anticipating, although this is a good start. And it's the type of transition in market thinking that will ultimately allow us to retest that 1% level in 10 years during the fourth quarter. Now, the biggest concern that I have, and it's been raised by several investors over the course of the week, is how much of a backup in yields can the equity market handle? On one hand, the Fed's transition to a new framework where it's made it very clear they will not be raising rates or making any attempt to normalize monetary policy for the foreseeable future, and the additional emphasis on the unemployment rate really should be a inflationary impulse at some point. And we know inflationary expectations are far more relevant than realized inflation. Nonetheless, we actually had a three-tenths of a percent increase in core PCE during the month of July, which brought the year-over-year pace to 1.3%. Certainly not the levels we saw in February when it was closer to 2%, from 1.9 to be precise, but it does leave us with the impression that the initial deflationary impulse that we saw during the peak of the pandemic has, for now at least, run its course. That doesn't mean that there won't ultimately be more headwinds for inflation as the year unfolds, but for the moment, the steepening trade is back in vogue. The front end of the curve is decidedly locked to monetary policy expectations, so don't expect two-year yields to move materially higher than, call it, 15 basis points. And that leaves the curve as a directional trade, very consistent with the themes that we have been talking about for the bulk of the summer. And after the Fed's very dovish pivot in this long-run monetary policy framework, I'm kind of skeptical that long rates are really going to be able to sell off that dramatically. And one of my major points of thinking here is basically just mechanical. You know, the Fed moved to an average inflation targeting regime. Fair enough. They didn't specify what average it is, but in some ways it doesn't really matter. If you look back from 2009 until now, whether you use a two-year average of core PCE, five-year, or 10-year, none of those three has even been at 2% since before the previous recession. So in that state of the world, okay, the Fed is more complicated than just a mechanical response to that average inflation, but it is possible they could have never raised rates in the previous cycle. It's a little bit hard to comprehend, especially given we've spent a lot of the past several years talking about this hiking cycle, but their framework says they're only going to take into account shortfalls in unemployment. Well, that was the case up until 2017 and average inflation. Well, average inflation across a variety of definitions has been below 2% the entire previous cycle. Where does that leave us? Well, I think, Ian, I think we've made this point ad nauseum. That leaves us with a very much lower for longer environment that compresses real rates and it should stimulate some upside in inflation. That actually could be good for the equity market as long as that's a positive kind of inflation, 
that doesn't correspond to higher real rates. Let's face it, John, what's not good for the equity market in this environment? We're definitely at the point where some upside surprises in consumption, in personal spending have added to the push to record high stock prices. But with the S&P 500 above 3,500, it's difficult to imagine that the momentum can keep running at this pace indefinitely. I'm wondering, to your point, John, what the likelihood is of a more significant backup in rates and how the equity market would respond to that. I could very easily envision a situation in which the data continues to show reasonable post-pandemic gains as the economy reopens and we transition into a new normal. The longer end of the treasury market comes under additional pressure. We go from the mid-70s to the mid-80s and even above 90 basis points at a moment when equity valuations appear to be stabilizing and then in the wake of the election, let's call it, or in the wake of some type of disappointment on the vaccine front, we see a significant correction lower in equities, call it 5 7%. What does the Fed do in that situation? And there's a very good fundamental reason to think that we could see that backup in long rates without really deviating any of the underlying narrative. The most recent survey of primary dealers and market participants, which basically just asks a lot of major investors how they're thinking about the world, the general response for what they expect average short rates to be over the next 10 years was somewhere in 1.2, 1 1.3, 1.4%. To the extent 10-year yields are a function of the expected average short rate over the next 10 years, that could imply we're in the offing for a 50, 60, 70 basis point correction in 10s just to bring 10-year yields in line with the expected short rate. Now, term premiums a factor there, QE's a factor there, the distribution of risk is a factor there. But I guess my point is we could see a backup in rates even in this framework that we're already in without seeing some explosive pro-growth surprise. Well, that then puts the Fed in a bit of a precarious situation where they need to figure out if they want to do something such as change the composition of QE to favor compressing the curve and taking out some of the steepening impulse that they've added. Now, my baseline assumption is that's going to be a much harder sell if we continue to see a compression of the mortgage basis. And as we know, one of the key ways that monetary policy impacts the consumer is via the wealth effect and housing plays a key role. So it's notable that at the beginning of the pandemic, the mortgage basis blew out and we didn't have the same drop in mortgage rates that we saw in the treasury market. Since we've seen some stabilization, the mortgage basis has drifted lower. And I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that if mortgage rates continue to drift lower, even in the face of higher treasury rates, that the Fed would be content to let the curve steepen up until the point that we start to see wobbles in risk assets. And Ian, you touch on the wealth effect, which I think is really important here, particularly around the performance of the equity market. Higher equity valuations naturally flow through into better 401ks, higher savings, etc., but the performance of stocks is also important through the lens of financial conditions. 
We've talked about this a lot, but from the perspective of the Fed being in that precarious position you highlight, if we do in fact see a pickup in equity volatility, that will once again tighten financial conditions and bring forward the question of how the Fed will ultimately step in. From a monetary policy perspective, the end result ultimately ends up being the same, but it's a slightly nuanced differentiation in the reaction function relating to the performance of stocks. One other thing that we haven't mentioned yet that could help push up long tenor rates is supply. Now, I think we're all on board that supply is not a primary or major driver of price action most of the time. But one idea I've been thinking about lately is that the Treasury's aggressive increase in 10, 20, and 30-year supply could be akin to the Fed's balance sheet roll-off that we saw from 2017 until 2019. And what I mean by this is any given month, any given week, it's probably not a big deal. It's not going to disrupt markets. But the concern is you suddenly hit a nonlinear trip point, and then you get some fireworks in terms of price action. The question, of course, is how long does Treasury continue to increase auction sizes by larger than anybody's expecting, by $5 billion a month in some very long-duration products? It's not obvious that'll continue too much into the future. But it is something that I've been wondering, in essence, that the supply has been taken down very well so far. There haven't been any major issues. That doesn't mean that there might not be in the future, because all we really need is to trip into a different type of trading dynamic, and suddenly supply could be a very big deal. Well, that's an argument that has been in the market for a very long time, and that's emboldened the proverbial bond vigilantes who assume that there is a non-linear tipping point at which the market says, no, I have enough treasuries, thanks, I'm going to pass. There are a couple clear mechanisms in place to ensure that if that period were to ever occur, that the associated rise in yields wouldn't be in the hundreds of basis points, but more in the tens, maybe 20s. So let's envision a situation where we see a few auctions that are not as well received. What happens to the primary dealer community? How willing are the Treasury Department and the Fed going to be to let the primary dealer community simply step away from the responsibility of underwriting the U.S. deficit. As we often say in the treasury market, there's no such thing as a bad bond, just a bad price. So my assumption is that there would be a clearing level, and it's probably at lower yields than I think the bond vigilantes would like to assume, at which we do see demand come back into the system. Moreover, if we think about it from a macroeconomics perspective, Higher rates are going to slow the economy. The Fed doesn't want to see the economy slowed until the unemployment rate gets solidly into at least the mid-single digits, if not lower. So they then would need to get involved if there was a significant backup in rates, which speaks to allocating QE further out the curve or a different approach to make sure that rates stay contained. Yeah. And focusing on this week's auctions in particular, that was a very good question that was posed in relation to the three very strong auctions we saw this week in twos, fives, and sevens. If in fact we are approaching this point where rates are going to rise, the curve may steepen, why are we seeing such strong auction performance? And the most compelling explanation, I think, is exactly what you say, Ian. Sure, the latest monetary policy and macroeconomic developments may inspire a sell-off to slightly higher yields, 
But the fact of the matter is, in the current paradigm, any really aggressive rise in rates is going to be met with a Fed response. Not to mention the fact the economic uncertainty that remains as we move toward fall and winter around the path of the pandemic at slightly higher yields, there will still be safe haven demand, which added to the liquidity benefit of the auctions gets one most of the way there and explaining why this week's supply in particular was taken down so well. And it's also important to keep in mind that the complete recovery of the U.S. economy is by no means a given. The fact of the matter is we have yet to see the fallout for the employment market that occurred when we saw the midsummer increase in COVID-19 cases. Now, we've all seen the headlines which suggest that there are a number of larger firms who have been holding on to employees throughout the pandemic that are now starting to shed some of those jobs as they face the realities of what post-COVID-19 consumption will actually look like. And despite the revelations on inflation and monetary policy this past week, the labor market situation really remains unchanged, and that's a polite way of saying pretty uninspired. Another week of a million-plus initial jobless claims sets a somewhat troubling stage for next week's NFP figures, given the fact that there are still 15 million jobs that have not yet been regained from the initial drop we saw in March and April. And tying it back into the broader growth story, if in fact we're set for several quarters or even years of a much slower recovery in the labor market, it's going to be very difficult to see upward pressure on wages. It's going to be very difficult to see a meaningful uptick in spending. And that really raises the specter of a prolonged period of much lower growth than we saw before the pandemic. Ben, on that point of the risk of a long recovery, one of the most concerning things out there in the world to me is the very depressed level of consumer confidence. The latest data that we've seen is that confidence has basically not recovered in any meaningful way from March and April, even though we've seen a reopening of the economy, even though we've seen millions of people go back to work, and even though we've had a record high equity market. Eventually, financial markets just cannot sustain at this type of optimistic pace unless optimism returns to households. To that point, one thing that we haven't touched on is the presidential election. Back in 2016, Trump's surprise election led to a huge increase in consumer confidence and kind of boosted animal spirits across the spectrum. We're now past both parties' conventions. Ian, how are you thinking about the path forward for the next couple weeks? Do you think that there's the possibility of a big jump to consumer confidence that could come out of this election the way that we saw four years ago? Frankly, I'm still pondering what my animal spirit might be. But over the course of the next few weeks, I do think that the path forward is going to be one characterized by volatility as we see an increase in the rhetoric around the election process and people really start to position for whatever outcome it is that they're expecting. Now, the consensus, at least at this point, clearly favors a Biden win with a high probability of a blue sweep. That said, given all of the risks surrounding the pandemic and the odds of a vaccine being successfully developed, investors have been reluctant to really position for an election outcome simply because if we think about what's going to drive equity valuations and the outright level of rates over the balance of the year, it's 90% pandemic, 10% the election 
or frankly, 5% the election and another 5% monetary policy. So why then would one want to establish a significant position this far in advance of an election that frankly won't be over when the polls close because it's safe to assume that it is going to be contested. So it might be weeks after November 3rd before we actually know how the election played out. Well, after this past week, one thing's for sure. We now know Powell's spirit animal. Is it a dove? Nailed it. In the week ahead, the Treasury market is going to contend with this idea that rates are attempting to find a new plateau, with 10-year yields having made a valiant attempt to achieve that 75 basis point level in a sustainable fashion. We're anticipating a period of consolidation where dip buying and reflationary ambitions continue to provide conflicting narratives as the summer comes to its unofficial end. The biggest question in the week ahead is what did the midsummer's increase in COVID-19 cases do to the employment landscape? This information will be revealed from the BOS's official data, and we're reminded that even at a consensus pace, which is a gain of 1.5 million jobs, the U.S. economy is still missing about 15 million jobs from that initial round of layoffs associated with the lockdowns and the initial hit from the coronavirus. The other big question as we ponder the balance of the year goes beyond the employment market and it's simply the baseline functioning of some of the major economic centers in the U.S. The Northeast continues its slow process of reopening and as the fall approaches, one of the primary concerns is whether or not in-person education leads to a spike in cases and if that does occur, how is that handled? In the event that we see another significant round of lockdowns or the reversal of some of the efforts to reopen, it does stand to reason that the employment landscape would become all the more vulnerable. Friday's impressive showing on personal income and personal spending, as well as core PCE, does speak to a consumer base that's still interested and, at least for the time being, able to spend, and that certainly bodes well for the third quarter real GDP figures. Now, we've long maintained that there would be a bounce after the horrific second quarter that we saw. So estimating the size of the growth in real GDP during the third quarter will be very topical, but the outright level of rates is going to be far more a function of the fourth quarter of 2020 and the first half of 2021. Our baseline assumption remains that the U.S. economy is at risk for a W-shaped recovery after we see an initial bounce due to the reopenings, runs its course, and employers take a hard look at their workforce and make the difficult decisions forced on them by the pandemic. All else being equal, we would expect that this time of the year would be characterized by limited liquidity and low volumes. In fact, what we have seen is an increase in activity and what appears to be a reasonably strong level of conviction behind the recent moves, proving once again that 2020 is atypical on so many levels. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And if sleep still hasn't come, not to worry, there will be two episodes of Macro Horizons next week. Mm-hmm.
Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.